Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 182 of F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen. Before we get into the meat of this week's show, I wanted to give my condolences to the community. We lost a great man and friend this past week. Jack Curran, who was on the show on episode 86, passed away. His black and white photography inspired many, but more importantly, he was an amazing friend, always generous with his time and advice, and perhaps one of the nicest damn humans in our community that I've met. You'll be missed, my friend. We'll be recording a special episode soon with some of Jack's friends to celebrate his life and his amazing photographic work. Alright, well let's get to the introduction of this week's guest. This week on the podcast, I recorded a socially distanced in-person podcast episode with my friend and fellow Durango resident, Michael Remke. Michael is a professor at Fort Lewis College and has a PhD in forest science. Michael pairs his passion for the outdoors and photography with his passion for ecological systems to create a symbiotic marriage of ideas that informs how he sees the world both as a photographer and a scientist. Michael's scientific research is currently focused on active forest management to promote the ecological, social, and economic well-being of communities. His past research was focused on plant-soil interactions in the context of changing climates, restoration, and conservation. I personally love how he uses science knowledge to show us hidden parts of the world through his lens. Michael and I discussed some interesting topics this week, including using photography as a conservation and communication tool, how science influences his photographic compositions, how photography influences his scientific research, how we can empower photographers to work with others to see intentional photography as a tool to protect special places, the impact of climate science and the changing climate on landscape photography, and much more. This week I decided to keep the episode in its entirety for free here because I felt like it would break up the conversation too much. So there won't be a bonus episode over on Patreon, but your support is still greatly appreciated. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Michael Remke, it's awesome to finally get to do this podcast with you. Yeah, this is amazing. I feel like we toyed around with this idea a long time ago. Some random, I think you were having an art show in downtown Durango, and I saw you on the street All right. walking back from that or something. That's and right. We, I just mentioned it, yeah. and then we didn't really follow up, and then here we are. Here we are. We finally made it happen, and here we are in your awesome, I guess you would say a studio apartment Yeah. here in Durango, and um, I was uh, immediately impressed by the fact that you're not married, and therefore you don't have a wife who prevents you from hanging your own artwork on the wall like I have in my house. So you have like, what do you want, 15, 20 of your own images on the wall here? Something like that. <laughs> That's pretty it's awesome. It's my space, so I get to do what I want. And <laughs> I just enjoy making prints, and you know, I'm working from home these days, so I built my own little forestry ecology nook, and it's nice to be able to be reminded of why I like being outside instead of stuck in this basement apartment all day just with bleak white walls yeah it's interesting when i look at your work on the walls they all seem to have some similar themes to them i would say there's a lot of um forest photography mountain photography um and you have several images of 
literally the forest is on fire. So I think that's super interesting and maybe is a good segue into you introducing yourself as a guest on the show and telling us about who you are. Yeah, it's always so loaded, the introduction. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just a dude. <laughs> I'm, I'm just some guy in Durango. What more do you want? I like to ride bikes and <laughs> rock climb and be outside. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I, I think the photography and the theme of the photos is a great segue to introduce myself. Um, I originally moved to Durango to come to college back in, I don't even know, 2007. I guess it's when I started college in Durango. And my dad was a film photographer. And so he kind of was like, oh, Durango's beautiful. If you're going to go to college down there, you need to have a camera. So he sent me with a camera and I was just like, what is this silly thing? And collected dust in my dorm room. And um, slowly but surely, the Durango landscape just captivated me. And I was totally in love with the Southwest. Right. It was pretty easy to do, right? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you drive three hours and you're in beautiful Red Rock country. You drive 30 minutes, you're, you know, right at the high Alpine. It's, it's the diversity of landscapes here is phenomenal. And I was racing mountain bikes at the time. So at that moment in my life, it was like, let's go ride bikes. (laughs) Let's get to the desert when it's cold out and let's go to the mountains when it's nice out. And this place just became a mecca of exploration. I moved away after college, uh, worked in Pagosa Springs doing private land, land management stuff. I, I guess I should mention I studied biology at Fort Lewis with a mountain studies minor, which was an emphasis in geology, geography, weather and climate, and outdoor education. Uh, so, so is that the typical route a lot of people take with that degree is teaching or guiding or like red river rafting that kind of thing yeah that's what most people end up doing is the the river rafting outdoor fun stuff and i got a little more enthralled with the science i started studying how plants in the alpine might respond to warming climates including how dust on snow might influence plant communities and became totally obsessed with that scientific avenue that way of learning and knowing about place and and ecology and ecosystems. Mm. So that, that really became a core value and interest and passion and, and hobby of mine and thus a career. (laughs) Um, and ultimately led to me moving away from Southwest and four corners to go work with sage grouse of all things. Oh, okay. Moved to Northeastern California, worked with sage grouse running around the, the great basin, Mostly at night, trying to trap birds. So it's like you go out at <laughs> night and it's like one person puts a boom box on their shoulder and plays the static of the radio so that the birds can't hear you coming. They can't hear your footsteps. Another person carries a spotlight and then a third person carries a net. And you just wander around all night looking for birds. It kind of sounds fun. It's it's fun. It's psychedelic, <laughs> right? Like you're in the desert at night just like <laughs> just listening to the static on the radio literally pouncing on birds in the middle of the night and it's it's unreal it's a totally different way to experience a landscape <laughs> just out of this world yeah so what were you doing with the birds uh, mostly just collaring them uh, sometimes with gps collars so we could track their flight behavior and then we would collect uh, dna samples from blood and feather samples and sex them this was in 2012 2013 so this was right before they were potentially going to be listed by the Endangered Species Act, gotcha. which would have dramatically changed range management, oil and gas development, 
most things at the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, I feel like I have to say know, these days, <laughs> the acronym's gotten so much more confusing, but the Bureau of Land Management uh, manages a lot of habitat for sage grouse. So if they were to be listed, they wouldn't be able to do as many oil and gas leases, uh, rangeland permits, etc. Yeah. So we needed to have a good sense of the, the viability of these populations. They were able to reproduce or whatever. So I was stuck just wandering around all night looking for birds. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, did you, the time you spent romping around in the desert looking for birds, did that have an influence on your desire to uh, pick up photography more? It shaped it in different ways because now I was spending more time in the dark, <laughs> outside, staring at the stars and seeing oh, this weird tunnel vision of the world, right? When you're walking around with a spotlight, you don't really see your surroundings, but you instead see whatever it is that your spotlight is composing. And it, it definitely like reframed my thoughts that photography is an abstraction of reality. Where prior to that experience, I used to think photography was reality. Mm. It was a still image that represented the world. Right. Then I realized the world to a photographer is what you can see with the camera, which, you know, if we're just going to talk realism, that's, that's one avenue of abstraction of reality because I get to choose what is represented in my photo. It's not the entire world of what my eyes can see if I look around and navigate the world. It's just what I frame with my, my camera. Right. So wandering around in the desert definitely did that for me because most of my life was this tunnel vision of like whatever the spotlight showed me. That makes sense. <clears throat> so after you spent time uh, romping around looking for birds, um, what, what came next after that? Because I think you spent some time down in Flagstaff, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. Your, uh, one of your recent photos was a trip down memory lane. <laughs> um, I, so after that, I switched into a graduate program where I pursued my uh, PhD in forest ecology, focused in understanding plant-soil organism interactions in northern Arizona and trying to better understand how soil biota can help plants survive during times of drought. Um, and if we could use soil biota to enhance artificial restoration of plants. So what is soil biota? Oh, man. <laughs> it's such a fascinating wormhole. I feel like this is like this black box, right? Speaking of abstractions of reality, this is a whole world we, you can't even see. I mean, maybe some of us are familiar with mushrooms, right? And like the fruiting body that comes up above ground. But otherwise, soil biota is this whole world of underground organisms. One gram of soil, we're talking thousands of species of bacteria, hundreds of species of fungi. And these fungi, they make hyphae, which are like plant roots, but really fine and filamentous. One gram of soil might have 20, 30, 40, 50 meters of hyphae. Wow. Tremendous amount of material all packed into this thing that we call soil. <laughs> Yet we can't see it with our eyes. We have to really dive in and use microscopes or nowadays use next generation sequencing and look at the molecular structure of all of the DNA and try to place it all to species. We're, we're constantly learning and describing new species in this world. So it's this whole world of biota that's yeah. actually extremely complex and arguably a whole ecosystem interacting with the ecosystems we do see above ground. And I'm guessing that your study in forest ecology and soil ecology, 
if that's even a term, but I'm, I'm guessing that that has had some influence on what you've been most interested in as a subject, as a photographer. Yeah, huge, hugely so. I mean, I, I think that's, that's shaped who I am as a photographer more than anything. In a lot of ways, it started by thinking of how can I even share the story of what this soil ecology <laughs> world is. Right. And in my lab, I had a, a camera, a DSLR mount for my microscope. And so I could actually just take my camera and attach it to my microscope and all of this light source would be coming from my microscope. And so I could take example photos of what I was looking at under the scope at extremely high resolution. And this, this became this like whole cool, like, oh, science storytelling. Yet it was so abstract that most people were like, what is that? And it was really hard to make art with it because all my slides had grids on them so I could quantify things. And it was, it was like, this is like a bar graph. It's like, yeah, I need this as a communication tool, but my audience is still scientists. And so then it started to become like, well, how do I transform that into something where my audience is Instagram or people who buy photography and, and view and appreciate fine art. And it's dramatically shaped how I look at composing scenes and subject matter. Obviously, I mean, you commented on the photos that are behind me, which I call my forest ecology nook. And it's like the photos that Matt's looking at are photos of a fire in a ponderosa pine forest with most of the trees still green, smoke in the ponderosa pine, um, all the litter getting consumed by fire in a ponderosa pine forest. And then there's a scene with Chapman Reservoir outside of Denver where all the pines are dead. And that's after the Hayman fire hmm. in 2002. And something that we think about as a non-traditional fire, a fire that's novel, something we normally wouldn't see in the forest isn't coming back. And then there's a whole bunch of other just forest photos, intact forests of different types. And I, I often hiking with my friends and stopping to be like, oh, this is such a nice scene in this forest. And maybe this podcast can help because I have yet to see photographers taking cool forest photography where it's not the sentinel trees. Like we see the massive redwoods and General Sherman and these like classic iconic scenes from the forest. But rarely do we just see like, Oh, the mixed conifer forest on your hike in the woods or the spruce fir on the way to the alpine or what have you. There's so much to explore and understand and appreciate with our forests. Yeah. Yet they're not really iconic landscape or nature photography subjects. Right. I'm, I'm curious because um, having had a few conversations with you in the past, I know that, you know, your goal with your photography is kind of multifaceted because I think you do have a desire for your photography to be seen as art but you also want it to have a secondary or even more of a primary purpose in that it tells a story about some kind of scientific reality that you're aware of but perhaps the the layperson might be or might not be aware of so I'm, I'm curious how do you how do you marry those two things <laughs> oh man Talk about an awkward marriage, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> like maybe that's a more awkward marriage than the one where your wife doesn't let you hang your own photos <laughs> on your walls. <laughs> I, I have a couple. <laughs> All right. A couple. We're doing good. <laughs> oh, it's such an important question. And I mean, it's, it's so fascinating because in a lot of ways, like this all started with an introduction to who I am. 
And I didn't really talk very much about photography in that introduction. In a lot of ways, I, uh, you know, in academics, we talk about imposter syndrome a lot. Sure. That idea of like, are you just saying you're something, but you're not really something? Right. In a lot of ways, I feel that way with photography because I sort of gave up the idea of being an artist with photography and instead adopted this idea of being a science communicator with photography. Though you're right in that my desires are really to marry the two, fine art, science communication, <laughs> yeah. whatever that is, right? Uh -huh. And so I guess I'm constantly seeking ways to do that. And one way that I've just started is Instagram and Facebook, for whatever people use them for, I've used them to write two sentences, maybe a paragraph, maybe longer if it's pressing uh, about ecology with a photo that represents what narrative I'm trying to share. And that could be as simple as some of these pictures of fire in the Ponderosa Pine Forest and sharing what fire is and how it's shaped our forested ecosystems. And that feels really pertinent to share because there's so much nuance about discussions right now with the fires in Oregon and Washington and California and even in Colorado, there's there's a lot of complex conversations to be had. And we have political leaders saying, oh, it's all vegetation management. We need to do a better job managing our forests. We have on the other side of the spectrum, political leaders saying, oh, it's all climate change. We need to address climate change. Yet all of these factors contribute to what's happening right now. It's right. not all climate change. It's not all vegetation management. Right. It's not one or the other in varying degrees of those two ideas matter for different systems in different contexts, like the West Slope of Cascadia. They don't need to do more vegetation management in those forests. I was going to say, like, <laughs> if you've ever spent any time in Oregon, they're doing a pretty okay job foresting already. Yeah, right. Like, like that, there's huge clear cuts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's huge clear cuts everywhere. I mean, it's that's probably not a good example of what of something that needs more forest management. Right. Yeah, if anything, we, we probably need to completely reshift that paradigm so that we're not clear-cutting and instead maybe mimicking some of these disturbances and uh, using these more complex approach, approaches known as ecological forestry. And maybe we could be doing that, but not to prevent the fires that are happening in Oregon, right? Like, those fires are, are drought-driven. There's a lot of people living in that landscape. I mean, Ashland, Oregon, and those fires that occurred just outside of Ashland that's practically a suburban fire, not right. a wildfire. And so we need to we need to understand and label all of these ideas properly so that we don't think, oh, we could just manage those forests and we won't have fires. Well, and I think the other piece of the puzzle that I don't see a lot of people talking about is that, you know, with the drive for bigger, badder, more awesome economy, you know, the proliferation of building more houses, giving people bigger houses in the, in the, what do they call that? The urban forest, uh, what is that called? The, the wildland urban interface. Yeah. The interface is, you know, it's California and Oregon and Washington have had fires way before we were there. Right. We're just now noticing it. Right. And because people's homes are there. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> if we're going to build in what what I call the fire zone, the places that are flammable, then our homes are now 
flammable. Right. <laughs> it's like, cool. Exactly. <laughs> you just set yourself up for that one. Right. I mean, it's, there's, there's a lot of complexities in, in all of this, especially thinking about that urban landscape and where we choose to develop. Right. You know, going back to what you were talking about in terms of forest ecology and um, what you know about soil, in psychology, there's a, there's a concept known as the curse of knowledge, which is basically um, the way that we think about the world that we operate in as individuals is based on the knowledge that we have about the world that we live in, mm-hmm. based on our experiences and, and what we learned in school and college and grad school and all those things. So, you know, the curse of knowledge idea basically says we often assume that other people are equipped with that same knowledge that we have. And as someone who has a PhD, I'm assuming the curse of knowledge is even worse for you. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, you're equipped with all of this knowledge about how ecologies work and how the soil operates. And I'm curious, what is that, how has that changed the way that you approach different landscapes in terms of, you know, leave no trace and, and like, how do we, how do we carefully tread on different areas as photographers? I'm guessing you're, you have this completely insane mindset that other people would really only begin to approach, but I'm curious kind of where you fall on that. Man. <laughs> That's a lot. I know. Yeah. <laughs> you bring up such, such great questions, Matt. I've always appreciated these conversations and it's fun to now do it in front of a microphone. Right. Actually document some of these with a little more intentionality. Uh, man, you know, honestly, I, I feel like I try to be so conscious of what people might not know. And maybe that stems more from not just having all this knowledge, but being a teacher and knowing that a lot of times our learning stops in that black and white model. And we learn like, oh, it's either this or it's that. But the reality of being a good educator, a good teacher is to help get people to see the gray and understand that there's not a single reality that is best. And instead, think about all the different contexts to help make their own decisions. So I guess I try to think about things from a strict ecological process-driven approach. And in a lot of ways, that's all Leave No Trace is, is recognizing that the science behind it is pretty simple. The more you all set up tripods and walk off trail to get the right composition, the more you damage the vegetation. The different geographies, right? Like maybe the plains, that's fine. Those grasses are going to grow back super fast. But alpine environments, I think about uh, Crater Lake up in the Maroon Bells, Ice Lake in the San Juans, those types of geographies. That vegetation is so sensitive to damage. It's short growing seasons. It's really harsh growing environments. It's cold. It's windy. It's only snow free, maybe three, four months of the year. And if it's snow free for that long, it's a drought year. And then it's heavy precipitation during the winter, heavy monsoons. We start damaging vegetation and soils and those processes of erosion get exacerbated big time. I know all of that. I, I don't have to expect other people to know all of that from the strict science of it. But if they at least understand like, oh yeah, leave no trace is here to protect this place. And the simple reason of like, oh yeah, this will have an impact. Right. That's enough. Like I think, I think about the don't bust the crust signs right. in Moab. Right. And like, that's all, that's all we're trying to say. Don't bust the plants. Don't bust the crust. Don't bust the roots, the soil. 
This and is... at the same time, I don't know if your experience has been this way, but I am also equipped with some of that knowledge, and I still have a hard time um, when I'm out there, especially in the high alpine, you know, or even in the desert. You know, you're walking. Maybe there's not a trail, but you know you're trying to get to this place on the map. And you're walking along and, and you're like, oh, there's a, oh, there's a cryptobiotic. And you're like dancing around stuff. <laughs> and, you know, when I'm in the high alpine, especially like in June, you know, where everything's marshy and there's marsh marigolds and wild, wildflowers popping up everywhere. You're like, where can I even walk? And it's like the kind of photography that I like to do, as you probably know, is I like to go off the beaten path. And I like to find things that no one else has perhaps seen or photographed before and there's an opportunity, there's a cost to that, um, that I'm always hyper aware of. And I don't always have the right answer for myself in terms of like, what is the right balance in terms of, do I always stay on established trails or is it okay to go off of a trail over here? But I guess where I've kind of landed is, you know, take caution and be as careful as you can, but I don't think it makes sense to be an absolutist about it either. Right. I, I mean, it's such it's such a difficult ethical space to occupy, right? It is, <laughs> and I struggle with the same thing. This this summer, my friends and I planned a week long off trail route in the in the Womanooch, and it's like, whew, right, this is all off trail, right? Like I, I value those experiences deeply. That's how I fall in love with places: is getting to those more remote places to experience that other people don't necessarily go to. Right. And I'm aware that more people are, it's constant. The gear is better. The information on the internet is making it more accessible. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, that's the core principle of all of this is being aware enough so that we don't just tell other people exactly how to get to the places that we got to. Let's make sure they, get out maps, appreciate the topo lines, appreciate the place. And then when they go do travel there, they, they appreciate like, Oh, this is a hard place to get to. Not like, Oh, thanks, Matt. You told me all the great information for how to get up there. That, that, that sure seemed nice, but rather like, huh, I really had to earn this. I really had to understand this place to, right. to be here. And, you know, I think that's maybe the core foundation of where to start with some of this for me. And, when I, when I go to go off trail, for me, it's like, oh, marsh marigolds, there's a whole lot of it. I'm going to try to like very delicately walk here and respect the marsh marigold instead of that like, right. you Just know. Just plow through. Exactly. <laughs> and like consciously acknowledging like, yes, there are plants amongst me. I have to acknowledge that. And if I get to a place where like plants seem really rare, like maybe in the desert, if it's like, man, this is like a gem of a spot. This plants are not abundant here. I'm going to go even more out of my way to not disturb that little spot of soil crust. Sure. It's like, man, this soil crust is super intact on this on this little bench. I'm going to find a way to skirt around it on rim rock. If bio crust is super abundant everywhere and my only option is cross country, I might be a little more like, okay, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Tiptoe. <laughs> Tiptoe through, be conscious, be aware, set some intentions, and just really really be present with where you are yeah it's yeah. so hard i mean it is hard <laughs> i struggled with it all summer because uh, i spent a lot of time in the wet minute myself and you know I, I was even vlogging some of it and it's like i'm showing people like oh don't 
don't walk where I just walked. <laughs> you know, it's like he feels like such a hypocrite. Um, and that's part of where I have, you know, like you said, it's a hard ethical space to occupy because on one hand, you're trying to tell people not to do something, but on the same time, you're kind of doing it. Right. And that's hard. Right. <laughs> and it's so different. Like those remote places in the Wamanooch are so different than, say, the shoreline of Crater Lake. Sure. I mean, that, that place it doesn't even have vegetation along it anymore. It's like... It used to. It used to. I mean, yeah. you're, I think you're more more referring to Maroon Lake. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Right, but Maroon Lake. I think more right. people will be more familiar with that location. Right. But Crater Lake's the one you actually have to hike to. Oh, uh, like a whole two miles. Yeah, right. But still, <laughs> that's, that's walking. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know it's interesting. I mean, I think those are the um, kind of like case examples I like to show people. Like, this is the future that we will all suffer if we're not all more mindful of this problem is you will have more and more locations like that that you can no longer experience in the same way. Right. Um, I like that framing. That's a really nice call for awareness. I don't know that it works, but, you know, it's funny. Uh, this couple weekends ago, I climbed a 14er down the Soundrays, uh, Humboldt Peak, with my best friend Silas. And um, way back in the day, I was on the board of directors of an organization called Rocky Mountain Field Institute, which literally had like hundreds of thousands of volunteer hours spent on building the trail system in that whole area. Hmm. And the whole purpose of that was to prevent this erosion of vegetation like you're describing and to prevent all these social trails from being created. And, and you know, they have really great before and after photos of that. But even still with these wonderful trails that were built by people to keep people on these trails to climb the mountain i caught like 10 people just cutting trails cutting switchbacks up through the tundra and i had to yell at some people a couple of times i was like do you have any reason why there's a sign right there that says stay on the trail do you know why and then they look at you like all you know no i don't know and then you have to explain to them you know it's because of the vegetation is fragile it takes like hundreds of years for that vegetation to come back. Um, I just don't, I think the main problem is just a lack of education and understanding of, of the ecology that people are visiting. Yeah. So you think maybe lack of awareness is precisely the problem? I think it's one of the problems. Yeah. It's definitely one of the problems that I feel like there's actually a solution to. Yeah. Like you can put money and time into educating people. Right. I think also the sheer number of people that are accessing these places is part of the problem. You know, the fewer people that go to a place, the less damage there's going to be to it in general. Sure. And that's all exacerbated by social media and yeah. geotagging and the accessibility of places, the improvement of the economy over the years. It's just more easy for people to travel now. I mean, yeah. there's lots of variables that contribute to this problem, but all of those variables haven't come with people learning about a place at the same time, which is right. So, yeah. And now we have a whole new generation of people like putting signs up and walk right past them. Mm -hmm. I want to stop and read a sign. If it's on an app, maybe. Right. It's Isn't still, that interesting? It's so weird. And I mean, I used to guide at, uh, Havasu Falls. Yeah. And these girls would walk up to me cause I'd wear my guide hat, you know, so is that work and girls not in my group, would just walk up to me and be like, excuse me, can you tell me where the log from Instagram is? 
Like, the, the log from Instagram? <laughs> well, it turns out there's a, like, big tree branch stump in the water at the base of Mooney Falls. And all the girls like to do their, like, bikini yoga poses and take pictures in front of the waterfall on it. And I had no idea what, what they were talking about at first. It was so clueless. And then I, I, like, got on Instagram and figured it out and was like, ah, oh, that's, that's what they're talking about. And so I used to just, like, point at random logs and be like, oh, there's a log right there. And, like, purposely kind of distract from it, realizing that that very log is part of the fame as to why a bunch of people suddenly decided they're going to go backpack 10 miles. Well, I think we'll touch on this later, but I think a big part of the problem is that there's a lot of people out there now that see the outdoors, um, they see these places as something that they can consume, Something that is there for them to um, to use as a prop to ex, you know to to further their own personal ego or whatever. Maybe if they're not even aware of it, you know, like oh, I want to get a selfie at this spot because I someone else saw someone else do it, and that all seems innocent and all because I think we all done it. Sure. But at the same time, it then becomes a you are now seeing your relationship with nature is now transactional. Right. Right. And I think therein lies a huge philosophical problem. If, mm. if you see nature as something you consume, then you're not going to treat it as something that should be saved and preserved long term. Right. But we digress. Oh, but it's such an interesting <laughs> side topic. <laughs> I mean, is. it's in <clears throat> one of my classes that I'm teaching right now, conservation biology. I just uh, started to teach the idea of like, okay, economics, right? Like. Why are we going to do conservation? Who's going to pay for it and who benefits from it? But also, what about the benefits of just the intrinsic value of nature and ideas of deep ecology, which suggests nature has rights and all of the living biota in nature has rights and entities. And so managing for conservation efforts might be for their rights. So they reap the benefit of it to our cost, which is maybe to take this problem and flip it on its head and say, what's the solution? But that's a whole, that's a whole can of worms, right? <laughs> it is. I mean, not to go too much farther into that, but, um, and I can't exactly remember the name of it, but there's actually a whole, um, there's a whole school of economic thought that a lot of, uh, liberals and conservatives, um, adhere to, at least philosophically, and it's basically, I don't remember the name of it, but the idea of it is that when you look at um, the value of something or like, let's take, uh, let's take deforestation, for example, you know, you have to look at more than <clears throat> just the value of the wood and the value of the land that's used for farming that comes out of that. And even beyond the value that it gives someone a job to clear those forests and to farm that land. You also have to look at the opportunity cost of clearing that forest, which is like <clears throat> you're going to have less carbon uh, neutrality because those trees won't exist anymore to absorb carbon dioxide. Right. You're going to have more pollution. <clears throat> you're going to have more soil erosion. Um, and you're also, you know, you start talking about things like mining and oil and gas extraction, which we all need to, at least currently, to operate our homes and vehicles and whatnot. But, you know... That all comes at a cost to people's health, comes at a cost to the environment. Right. Like, 
those things don't come at no cost. Right. Right. So like, and and I think the current way of thinking for a lot of people is that they don't think about those hidden costs. Sure. Of, of taking that selfie in front of a popular waterfall and geotagging it. Like they don't see that, okay, now you're going to bring 10 more people to that spot. And then maybe in 10 years, they're going to put a fence up there and no one will be able to take that photo. Sure. So is that really what you want? You got the photo. <laughs> right? It's like the, oh, yeah, this let's... is your perceived free lunch, taking the selfie. But the economist says, no, there is no such thing as a free lunch. There isn't. Look for look for what the cost might be. And that's a difficult ask to make of people who maybe aren't even aware of the ecology or the compounding consequences of how many people see their posts on social media. Well, not only that, but I mean, it's especially problematic in a society such as the United States that is so um, rooted in individualism, which isn't a totally all bad or good thing. And we're all about uh, freedom and economic prosperity. Right. And if those are your values as a society, that's great. But there's a cost to that. Right. Right. All right, dude. Well, we touched on it earlier, but I was curious um, to talk a little bit more about what your thoughts are on using photography and not just yourself, but other people using photography um, as a conservation tool um, and a communication tool. Like, what does that look like? Yeah, it's such a good question. I feel like it's still so abstract to me. It is. So I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Um, I mean, I I started to mention how social media is where I start, right? And then I've kind of taken it to this other place where if someone decides to buy a print from me, they get a science description with their photo. Oh, interesting. So you're getting a fine art photo and either on the back or on a card that comes with it, you're getting a written three-sentence description about the scientific phenomena associated with that photo. That's really cool. So, like, uh, behind me, there's this picture of all the yellow flowers yeah. in the beetle kill. And I was going to say, that looks a lot like Section 21 of the Colorado Trail. Yeah, it's near there. It totally <laughs> is spot on. <laughs> Fairly close to there. And that composition really spoke to me because you have all this beetle kill, right, in a spruce fir forest. So, normally, it's really shaded. You kill all the overstory trees and now you have all of the sunlight coming in and it's this huge release of wildflowers. So you have all of this, in this case, triangle leaf senecio or triangle leaf ragwort. So not the most thrilling name, but this beautiful yellow flower and it's driven by the light response, the beetle kill. So that composition, midday, not ideal landscape, photography, light and setting, yet it told me this story that's relevant to the science. You buy that picture... You get a photo with a scientific name of a plant, the common name, and the process that the photo represents. So here's an idea. What if, now obviously I'm planting a seed that you may not be willing to cultivate, but what if other photographers sent you their images and you produced, if, if there was one relevant within the photograph, you produced some kind of scientific explanation or story behind the image and they... And like, yeah, cause me personally, like I love science. I love ecology. I love all this stuff, but I wasn't, that's not where my educational background is. So like every time I take a photo of a flower, I'm like, oh, I need to look that flower up. Cause I don't know what it is. Right. Like I'm not equipped with that knowledge, but you are. So I'm right. wondering if like, maybe that's a way to spread the knowledge is to have 
you know, people that know a lot about how to take crazy good photos, partnering with people who know a lot about the ecology and the science behind those places, maybe that's maybe that's an idea. I like I like your idea a lot, and that's exactly what I'm trying to do with a good friend of mine, Christina Young, who was in my graduate program with me. She is now in Moab, where she's doing her PhD, trying to understand biocrust better. But she also has a science communication group called Science Moab. It's a nonprofit. They do things like have, pre-COVID at least, they would have science talks at bars and everyone would drink beer and talk science and it was great. She also has a podcast. And she came up with this idea that almost matches yours perfectly. And I'm kind of giving it a trial run and supporting her where we sell photos from a network of photographers and each photo comes with a paired scientist caption. Ah. So more or less exactly what you're trying to communicate. And, you know, Science Moab is Colorado Plateau centric. So it's place-based photography, place-based science, which I think is really cool. I think it's also nice to think about widening the breadth of that because, you know, Colorado Plateau is one place. It's not the only place that matters in this world. Sure. So I think that concept is huge. And I think if photographers are willing and scientists are willing, you can have a lot of fun with this like mishmash. Right. And another thing, Daniel Lachlan, who's a professor at University of Wyoming, he's working on this like global network of photos so that you can like see places and he wants them to be fine art photos. And they'll come with a description of the plant community and some sort of scientific process that's represented in the photo. And he's trying to make like a web interface for that. Not really like the fine art side of things, but more the science communication side of things. So there's, there's things happening that I think get at some of this. And I think those are really cool starting points. Right. I mean, I, I always, I mean, that's what drives my interest in a lot of these topics is I'm always curious about a place when I'm photographing it. Cause obviously that thing caught your attention, right? Like, right. Oh, that's beautiful. And I want to take a picture. Um, but I'm not always equipped with, you know, what all is there about this that I should be knowing? And I think a key ingredient of conservation is having an appreciation of a place. Right. Right. If you don't know about a place and you've never been there, like that's, I think a part of the problem is a lot of the people in Washington, DC setting policy. They've never been to the places we've seen. They don't understand what they're missing out on. Exactly. The impact of their decisions and what it means. Yep. I think that's a big part of the problem. I fully agree. And it's it's cool, right? Because a lot of those elements that a photographer sees, like uh, an image of yours that always comes to mind is the beautiful glacial valleys of the Cimarrons where you got up high on one of those ridges and you're looking towards Uncompagre and you can see the two parallel glacial valleys and it's this like oddly symmetric scene. It almost looks like it's just the mirror image right. and it's just photoshopped, but it's this real phenomenon that actually occurred and it's this amazing geologic event where you have these two perfectly paralleled valleys because right up there in the northern San Juans you had east-west trending mountains so the glaciers on the north face of them just pulled perfectly to the north it's just like what it's (laughs) unreal but photographically it's extremely pleasing like as a photographer you nailed the composition with that 
And as a scientist, I'm like, whoa, look at the geology. Like, that is amazing. Yeah. And that's kind of constantly how my eyes are like seeing other photographers work is like, whoa, they did a really cool thing with, with this. And I've talked to quite a few photographers and I start talking about what I liked about the and picture. They're like, and they're what? like, they're just like, I was just trying to get a good front row, man. <laughs> like rule of thirds. So I'm like, ah, oh, right, right, right. Sorry. <laughs> <I'm> nerding out. <laughs> No, that's cool. But I, yeah, I think, I think that's, you know, if more and more people can get excited about kind of the unspoken uh, scientific aspects of what makes a photograph good, not compositionally necessarily or, um, you know, the light or anything, but just, you know, if there's something about an image that is created by science, why not, you know, share that with the world so that they can learn from it? Right, especially when some of these photographers have huge audiences on their social media. Right. It's like, how, how many people can you reach right. with one share? Right. And then photographers take it a step further, and they're putting it in magazines. And if that magazine just had a little bit about why that place is special, ecologically, geologically, whatever, not so much that it was distracting from the point of why that picture and that photographer are being featured, we could enhance everyone's appreciation for that photo and therefore the work that that photographer did right seems like mutualism at its finest to me absolutely i think it's something worth exploring further well maybe that's a good uh segue into another question um what are some other ways that we can empower photographers to empower others to see intentional photography as a tool to protect special places oh Really just diving in. <laughs> this is, this is maybe the, the total crux of some of these questions that, you know, we, we were talking about the compounding effects of someone sharing a place on social media. And we might not always see the opportunity costs or individuals might not always see the opportunity costs. I guess this is sort of getting at the idea. What are the opportunities? The benefits that we might not be seeing. And I guess we sort of just touched on it, too. I mean, mm -hmm. it seems that trying to elevate why a photographer thinks a, a place is special can elevate their audience's appreciation for place, which if they do feel prompted to go visit that place, maybe that photographer's audience visits with more intentionality mm -hmm. and visits with more care and respect because their photographer shared that care and respect in their own inspiration for it. Mm -hmm. So it, it seems to me this is simply just helping to reframe how we present why we care about places. Yeah. Move away from the, this is going to be a great print to sell and move into the, this is going to be a great print to sell. And this is a great way to show somebody why I love photographing in, in Yosemite every year or why I decided to go to this spot on this day to get the light at this angle so that the shadow of uh, that butte is perfectly aligned on right. that butte right. and like really share that delicate process. Even if it's like the, I tried to come here for 27 different times and finally the light is right and showing that patience and perseverance and challenge. It's not just you go there, you get out of your car, you walk 10 miles and you're happy. It's more like, you walk 10 miles, you sit in the pouring rain, and the clouds never break. You go back to your car, vacation's over, you go back to work, you come back out another time, 
it's totally bluebird. You don't get the conditions you want. You go back to work. You come back again. And now you have this special connection with this place. And it was challenging. Now we deeply appreciate how hard it was to get that photo rather than just like, well, beautiful. I'll put it on my living room, please. Yeah. I don't know. What, what do you think? I mean, I think everything you just said makes a lot of sense. It, it Unfortunately for me, because of the way I'm wired, it, it had me already thinking a little bit about uh, the proclivity of some photographers to, to use comp- composites and Photoshop to, to recreate a scene that doesn't exist or maybe that they wished exist, <laughs> wished existed, or like you said, they went there and the clouds were there, so... I'm just going to swap in a different sky that I thought would be there. And I think, you know, it might be a tough sell for some people, but I think you just kind of made a case for how that type of uh, process in photography, or we should call it digital art, I should say, kind of cheapens people's perception of place Mm -hmm. and experience. And... uh, I guess that's a, just another argument for me to, to toot my horn about. Like, please don't do that anymore because it's, yeah, it's your art or whatever. But I think there are some some hidden costs to doing that. I mm-hmm. think I think it makes people that actually go to those places they're not going to have that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think just like social media makes us think that other people are living this amazing, crazy, awesome life. Well, it's because they only show us this curated version of their life. And I think when we only show people these hyper-curated, hyper-realistic images that don't don't and can't exist, it can have the same effect on how people perceive the environment. Right. And maybe, maybe that's just me taking it a step too far. I don't know. I mean, I... I see where you're coming from with that. And it's fascinating, right? Because this, these tools are so easy to do in the digital world. Uh, it's sure. just so easy to manipulate and just like dodge in whatever scene you want. Just make the moon all big because you shot it at 600 and then you shot your landscape at 24 or whatever. And I mean, I, I agree. That's no moon. <laughs> yeah. Like, what planet is that? That's like, the Death Star. <laughs> I mean, indeed, like Star Wars and these, Planets for sci-fi movies are made with really talented digital artists who do that. Right. They have <laughs> scenes on Earth that they took pictures of right. and blended them together to make this like crazy apocalyptic desert mountain scene. Right. And you're like, oh, there's Tatooine. And it's like, <laughs> actually, that's like uh, the face of Everest blended with some desert scene in the Sahara right. blended with some other random thing. And it's like, that's not real life. It's sci-fi. It's totally sci-fi. And I mean, I have this distinct memory because I was a photo guide in in Havasu Falls. And one of my clients told me he wanted a photo of the full moon rising over Havasu Falls. And I was like, it's impossible. We're going to be facing south. The moon's going to rise over there. And it's going to come up. And by the time it's above the falls, it's going to be way above the falls. And then it's going to set way over there. So you're never going to get that photo. And he was like, well, I need to get it. I saw a photo like that. And I was like, okay, well, so here's the other challenge. You need to shoot the moon with a long lens so that you have detail in the moon and it looks nice. And then you're going to need to shoot the falls with a wide lens. And you're going to have to blend the moon into that scene with the wide lens. 
And he was like, well, I wanted in one. I want a single image. It's just like, it's impossible. Right. You can compose this where you get up above the falls over here and look adjacent to the waterfall and see the moon rising in the Carbon Canyon, which is a tributary canyon right there. And it's a phenomenal canyon. And the moon rise in that canyon is spectacular. Right. But it's not going to be rising over Havasu Falls. Well, I think what you're speaking about here is the difference between using photography as purely an artistic medium versus using photography as an artistic medium and a communication tool. Right. Because the second you start, uh, you know, digitally altering images to be something that can't exist, you're communicating something completely different about that place in that here's something that can't exist and never will exist, but I'm showing it to you anyway. Right. And that's fine if that's what you want to do, but it's, you're, you're, you're kind of missing an opportunity to communicate about a place. Right. Or maybe you're accentuating someone's experience of a place. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, who knows? Right. And it, maybe it's your intentionality. Like if you're just trying to get publicity, likes, all those outputs that we can easily quantify, like you were describing earlier of like, Oh, this is something that I can exploit and make money off of and sell prints with. Well, mission accomplished perhaps. Right. Like, how many times the fake composite blends spread on social media? Like, well, people love them. They love them. It's it's insane. Where then, like, the same photo from the same place under natural conditions, single image, people are kind of like, oh, that's pretty. Right. And I think that's not to go too deeply into that particular subject, but that's another argument that I have against compositing because I think the talking about opportunity costs or hidden costs, I think when the general public comes to view photography um, or come to expect it to be grandiose in that way, um, images that are of a more realistic fashion, straight photography, if you will, doesn't mean not artistic. It just means it's straight. Right. People are not going to view it with the same amount of fervor because they've come so used to seeing these ridiculous scenes that can't exist. And do you think if a composite artist reveals, Hey, this is a composite blend that changes the outcome at all. I think I've actually done that as an experiment in in person with people. Like I'll show people photos that I've taken back when I used to do composites. And I, and when you, you immediately get a different reaction from people when they realize that it's something you've quote unquote manufactured or created. I think people are like, Oh, okay. I, I, and there are, there are some people are like, I don't care. It looks great. It's cool. But I think the, I think the reason why most people don't disclose that straight out of the gate up front is because they know that it will be met with less enthusiasm. Hmm. Interesting. I think. I mean, so I... There's a story from like a 1994 article in The Atlantic hmm. with Galen Rowell. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Galen Rowell. Absolutely. Um, Where he has a photograph. He he used to have a photograph of this um, bear in his gallery that was like towering over the photographer, like with his teeth snarled and everything. Ah. And it was like this powerful image of this bear about to attack. And... Uh, he, he had a, I'm probably going to butcher the story a little, but he had lots of people come in and ask about it 
And every time he had to explain it to people that it was a Hollywood trained bear that he took a photograph of, that it wasn't a real experience. It wasn't something he encountered in the wild. It was a, it was a manufactured photograph, you know, staged, if you will. Right. He could literally see the disappointment on people's faces. Like, mm. oh, it was kind of a letdown. Like, oh, I wish that was real. Mm. And I think I'm always, I always remember reading that and thinking, I, I think there's a lot of people out there that would probably have the same reaction to some of these photographs that they love if they knew how they were created. Right. In a lot of ways, it comes back to this initial idea of photography is perceived to capture something real in the moment, Instagram, right? Instantaneous. That is what the photo captured rather than something that was staged, something that was manufactured or altered. It's, it's this fascinating reality. I mean, I, I blow people's minds all the way when, all the time when I show them Ansel Adams and where he's circled on all of his oh, right. photos where he's going dodge and burn and dodge and burn to justify why I use Lightroom to make basic edits to my photos because I have some purest friends who are like, that's digitally altering photographs. And I'm like, well, let's look at what Ansel Adams did. But people perceive that like, that's the difference between film and digital is film was totally raw, totally real, unedited. Which it wasn't. And it wasn't. And then they perceive digital as like, oh yeah, it's it's hopefully unedited unless you've done all of these alterations and then it's not a pure photograph anymore. Right. And so maybe this is getting at, is it reality or something else? Well, and I've, I like what you said uh, because I strongly believe that, you know, you know, that that idea that photography is rooted in in a real event or an experience or something that actually happened is part of why this debate happens because truly photography is the only artistic medium that has that constraint and i i use the word constraint a little bit cautiously because i don't necessarily see it as a constra- as a bad thing right i i kind of if anything it makes photography more challenging as an art form. Like, right. how do you arrange a subject in a way with your camera and your lens? And obviously, you're going to only show certain parts of the scenes. But to me, like, adhering to that strict standard of only showing what actually was there, that constraint makes it a more challenging pursuit. Right. And I think, which. I think is why people started using those techniques is because they realize how freaking hard it is to get those photographs really. Right. And they get tired of failing. And so then they just decide, you know what, I'm just going to Photoshop this scene in because I've been to this place 42 times and the sunrise never happened the way I envisioned it. Right. Or the optical distortion of my wide angle lens makes those mountains on the horizon look too small. So I'm going to do a perspective blend. Right. And I I think there's, some merit to doing some perspective blending. Sure. If it's, and, and I got this idea from my friend, Michael Bellino. I wrote about it in the, in the, um, secrets from the stars book that I was mm. an author in, but I, I think good photography is rooted in, in a photograph representing an experience. Mm. Um, and I think this, the, the second you start, Swapping in skies and dropping in clouds and dropping in Milky Ways and taking a bird from this scene and a bird from that scene and a waterfall from that scene and a plant from Patagonia and a stream from Argent from Iceland and you create this beautiful ridiculous scene that's perfect. 
Like that to me does is no longer an experience. Right. Doesn't represent anything you can experience. It's artistic. Right. It's art. It's beautiful, but it's no longer for me what I define as photography, which is rooted in an experienceable thing. Right. But that's me. I mean, I, that resonates. I think Ansel Adam uh, was quoted saying, a good photograph captures the emotions of a moment. Sure. Similar, right? You An can't experience. say that if you start dropping in different moments. Right. I mean, <laughs> the colors of the sky set the tone and the mood for your photograph. And look, I'm not saying, I'm not saying those people shouldn't do that. All I really am asking is for people to just don't call it photography. Right. Digital it's not, art. It's not photography sure. anymore. Right. It's digital art and it's great and it looks wonderful, but own it. Right. And I think there's a fairly easy line to draw, right? Like realism seems to be the, the category of like when you break out of realism and you're no longer representing that moment and that scene, it's like that's, that's when it's not true photography because a mild perspective blend, it's like, well, the optics of my 24 or my 20 millimeter lens make those mountains look way smaller than I am experiencing it. Correct. So maybe I'm going to shoot it at 35 and blend it with my 24 so that it's like, oh, that feels like how this place felt. Right. I have a photograph I took last fall where there was like a, a like a big gibbous moon in the sky above Mount Snuffles. Mm-hmm. And I think I shot the scene at like 35 millimeter. But, like, the moon was tiny, right? And I, I think I blended in, like, a 65-millimeter moon from the exact same moment in time. Right. And I th- and it looks totally fine. But to me, it was like, I want it to represent what I experienced. Right. I don't want it to represent the Death Star hovering <laughs> over my snuffles, right? But, you know, I wanted it to look more like what I remember. Right. So I think there is a use case for perspective blending. I mean, come on, the only thing more dramatic than the volcanism of the San Juan Mountains is the Death Star blowing up the San Juan Mountains. This is true. This is true. (laughs) Well, so we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I was really curious to hear you talk a little bit about how science and your study of science influences your compositions. Oh, there's so many. There's so many layers. I, I guess in a big way... When I go out to shoot photos, I'm often like looking for stories. Like last fall, I really wanted some fall foliage shots, but I didn't want to just drive up into the San Juans and be one of the thousands of photographers gawking from the side of the road or going on short, easy hikes to get fall foliage colors. And last fall, I was settling into some pretty big projects rooted in fire ecology, mostly on the Missionary Ridge fire and the 416 fire that we had here. And I started thinking a lot about historical fires. So I landed my brain on the 1879 Lime Creek Fire. Oh, yeah. Which there's a sign for it on the side of the highway. Right. If people stop and read signs, it's there. The sign focuses, I think, on uh, the trees that we planted after that fire, which were lodgepole pines, which don't occur this far south, (laughs) which is interesting. But the other thing that that fire did is it created a bunch of aspen. Right. Aspen love these disturbances. They respond prolifically to fire. And you can like look out across the entire burn scar to Twilight Peak. And it's this beautiful setting. A lot of photographers compose in that general area. But I really wanted to capture that mosaic of aspen and green spruce, not the lodgepole pine, because the spruce didn't burn in small patches to show that fire left this imprint on the landscape that we can see today. 
So it was rooted in this story of fire history. And there's so much depth to like that one story, right? You could do a whole photo journal story on that fire, the trees we planted, the origins of the fire, the cultural connections to fire. It's a lot you could dive into with a little bit of awareness, right. but to seek out a composition intentionally because of the ecological story is sort of the foundation of how I photograph. And I mean, I, I also am a field scientist, right? So I'm outside all the time studying stuff in the woods. <laughs> right. And it might be the case that I'm like obsessed with beetle kill in Ponderosa Pine and I'm composing images to share the story of unprecedented beetle mortality in Ponderosa Pine. Or it might be like, oh, there's this other insect, spruce budworm, that defoliates spruce and eats their needles. So maybe I'm like trying to find drapey moss-covered trees or lichen-covered trees to show this story of this insect. I guess it's endless with ecology, right? It's all interactions. And that drives how I think about where I want to go, what I want to compose, and what I'm inspired to photograph. So short of going and getting my PhD, like what are some ways that someone like me who's curious about those kinds of things but isn't equipped with that knowledge, like what, how, do, how can someone kind of immerse themselves in some of that um, knowledge base in order to appreciate it more? It's a good question. You know, I think every locality is going to be different. Like here in Durango, the group, one of the groups I work with, Mountain Studies Institute and San Juan Mountain Association, both lead a lot of educational seminars where you can go on hikes to learn about glaciology, learn about botany, learn about fire ecology. So those are easy local ways to just like have someone spoon feed you information about the place you live. Everywhere has them. I mean, even some of the, I've done prescribed fire in Nebraska. And Omaha has a whole group of people that educate people about the importance of burning in the prairie. And so that that's a great place-based tool is finding these nonprofits that do do education and outreach, or maybe there's some for-profits too. Sure. The other thing is literature. And when I say that, I don't mean go get on Google Scholar and search for papers, but like here in the San Juans, we have uh, two books that Rob Blair edited. Uh, the Eastern San Juan Mountains and their natural history, geology, and I forget what their exact titles are, but there's one for the Eastern and one for the Western San Juans. There's one coming out for Bears Ears that's like a great cultural history. And these types of books are hopefully somewhat fun to read, not like a textbook, but jam-packed with lots of great info. And then, you know, the other classic ones, roadside geology books, so easy it's like you're driving down the road, you're planning your hike, you can just pick up a book that's focused on geology, really start learning. I think the ecology stuff's a little more limited mm -hmm. in scope. There's not, it's not as much out there for ecologists, but those types of places are good places to start. Nice. Well, so what about the flip side of that? How, how has your pursuit of photography uh, influenced your, your studies in science? Uh, so I'm so glad you asked the flip too. Photography is so powerful, right? I, I tell my students in the sciences, the most important thing that we do in the scientific method is observation, right? Paying attention. And, you know, this hustle and bustle lifestyle is so fast paced. It's so hard to actually go slow and not just go outside, get the work done, go home. 
especially if you're busy taking selfies and doing all this stuff while you're while you're there. I mean, to slow down and really pay attention is what photography is, right? Like, I'm not going to blend in a random sky that's just sitting on my computer as stock skies. I'm going to wait for the light to change, which means I'm going to sit patiently, maybe wander around, walk around in the place I'm in and just look at patterns on the landscape. And maybe I'm looking for a composition. I'm looking for my leading lines. I'm looking for my front row and the front third and, you know, really thinking about the composition, but I'm observing like, wow, it's really interesting that this juniper is dead and that one's alive. And I start paying attention to that. And maybe now my composition is this like dead tree adjacent juxtaposed to the living tree. And then now I'm going back to my, my lab and being like, why are some of these junipers dying, but not all of them? And asking the next question. And I can be like, look at this photo. Here it is. And it, likewise, when I have high quality photos and I present them at a conference, my peers and colleagues are full of questions like, oh, can you go back to that picture? I was noticing this pattern and it becomes this place of slowing all of us down to pay attention to some of these intricacies and fine details. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's what makes a good photographer is people that are able to slow down and start to notice things that other people don't. I mean, that, that's, to me, that's the definition of a great landscape photographer. I, I fully agree. I mean, it's how often do you see someone take out their phone and take a picture and it's like, oh, that's kind of cool. It's a pretty place. And then maybe their friend pulls out their friend and kneels and takes a picture because they saw like the angle of the rock in the foreground. Right. This is a great thing. All they did was kneel and they still took a cell phone picture. And it's like that one speaks wonders to me compared to the awkward rock totally cut off. Right. There, there's actually a good psychology study. I'll see if I can dig it up and share it with you. It tests the memory of people's experiences based on if they took no photos at all, if they took well-composed fine art photos, or if they took uh, rapid like cell phone photos. Really? And what's super fascinating is the rapid photo taking degraded people's memory of place. They'll have almost no recollection of the experience they had unless they're triggered by their photos. The, uh, I'm saving the fine art photographer for last. The person who didn't take any photos has pretty robust memory. They can describe this, the place, the scene, the smells, the noises, some details. But the fine art photographer was really able to explain depth and detail of place and described objects that neither of the other two groups noticed. And they might, those objects might not have made it into their photograph of place, but they still remember like, oh yeah, there was, there was a coffee cup on the edge of the table and the coffee cup read books and it was in front of the library, right? Because they're like, oh, what's the story? It's books and library and like, wow, look at how perfect that is for my composition. Right. But if you're just like, oh, there's the library, moving on. You never even looked around to see that coffee cup there. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. So what you're saying is that a good photographer has a better recollection of a place and probably has a deeper appreciation of it. Spot on. And science supports that assertion, which is really cool. That is very cool. And thus, I think landscape photographers would be great scientists 
if they had a little more knowledge and training in the sciences. And there's quite a few of them out there that there are. They're Hillary Younger. She's sure. phenomenal, and her sense of place really helps us understand and appreciate Tasmania and some of the other exotic locations she goes. And I know she's working on capturing the story of glaciers right, right now. And I, I think that's like a phenomenal example of like, you don't have to be a scientist to share science stories. You just have to do a little bit of homework and pay attention. Right. Right. And be curious. And be curious. Yeah. Right. I think that's the ingredient that's often missing. Right. Curiosity, curiosity. is sort of critical. It's very critical. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're not curious, you're not really going to enjoy diving into some, some of the research that you have to do. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, you know, earlier we were talking a lot about forest uh, fires and one of the things you talked about a little bit was the uh, the influence of, of climate change and climate science on some of the things that we're seeing and noticing in the environment as landscape photographers because we're paying attention and we're curious, right? Right. And I'm curious from your perspective as a scientist, uh, you know, what impact does climate science and the changing climate have on landscape photography as a pursuit? Oh, it's such a good question. I, I think in a lot of ways it's profound, right? I mean, there are going to be places that photographers have known and loved that are completely different, like 100% unrecognizable. Who knows the extent of some of that, right? I mean, Hanging Lake, this year, the geography around there was burned by, by the Grizzly Creek fire. Mm -hmm. The lake itself and the immediate geography around the lake, a lot of people are saying it was spared. But when we start seeing precipitation and runoff coming out of there, I mean, that, that place will be altered. And I know one of my friends was cutting down trees on the trail for fire break. And he said he cut down some really big trees up there. So that is one place where a lot of photographers go and they know and they're familiar with. It's going to look different and it's going to keep looking different as things continue to change. That's just one, one spot. When we look at what happened up in uh, the Columbia River Gorge mm -hmm. and those waterfalls were forever altered in the forests around them. And that's a great place where the question remains, when will it be a green forest? Yeah, maybe not ever in our lifetime. Yet, it's still there. The, the larger topography is still there. So what a cool opportunity for photography to document change and to continue to evolve with these places as they evolve mm -hmm. and help all of us see and understand these changes and be a communicator for those changes. Right. So far, I guess we're still talking physical changes that are like obvious and direct and maybe more abstractly linked to climate change, right? But what happens when some of these creeks and lakes start receding, having lower levels? I mean, Lake Powell is a photography subject. You see the bathtub ring. We are watching the evaporation of water and all of the calcium deposits on the rock remain. Other lakes, like Alpine Lakes in the Sierra, we see the trim line from the lake. Alpine Lakes receding. There's a lot of big changes that are happening, and photographers are passively documenting it and some are very intentionally and actively documenting it like sure. Hillary. So I, I think we need to be aware that our photo subjects might not be the same in a year. They might not be the same tomorrow. If you have a fire start at a place that you were just photographing, hopefully you didn't start the fire, 
But regardless, the next day, it might be totally different, 100% transformed. Maybe engulfed in flames, maybe not. Maybe three months later, it gets knocked out in a debris flow, and your subject is totally unrecognizable. And that, to me, is part of the power of a photograph. It's a still image from a single point in time that's preserved. I use historical photographs all the time to look at how forests have changed. And it's incredible to see. And none of that was laid out with the intention of fine art. Some of it's just from uh, Everett Roos or even some Ansel Adam photographs. And they just happen to be going somewhere that's compelling and took a photo. And then I'm like, oh, I know that place. And I can understand how it might be different today. So I'll go back to that place and look at what's changed. Yeah, I think one of the most clear examples that I've seen here in Colorado as a person who's been going into the mountains since I was two years old. And so I have a very vivid memory of places here in Colorado, um, especially down here in southwest Colorado, is uh, the, the amount of beetle kill that we've seen. Right. And uh, I think you're maybe the perfect person to ask because I think if you Google it, you get conflicting answers. But you know, my understanding of the beetle kill problem, and and if you're not familiar with beetle kill, you have these huge swaths of pine forests that have just been decimated, and they're just brown and dead. And it, it's it's just it's terrible. It looks it looks ghastly. Um, I mean, I guess compositionally speaking, you can make some cool photos with that, but <laughs> it also, like, from a, you know, na natural beauty perspective, like, there's nothing that looks natural about it at all in terms of a natural process. Um, so I'm curious to hear your stance from a scientific perspective on kind of what have been some of the root causes of, of beetle kill in terms of, yeah, what you've learned. Yeah, it's, it's a great question, and there's a lot of conflicting ideas out there. Uh -huh. And even in the sciences, there's a lot of conflicting ideas. Well, that's good, though. So, yeah, it's exciting. It's a good topic. And, you know, just to, just to be clear, we're often talking our higher elevation forests. Right. We're talking um, lodgepole pine in the central and northern Rockies. And down here in the southwest part of the state, we're really talking like spruce beetle, right? Going for the Engelman spruce. And... As Matt was saying, this is an event that we've seen 80 to 90 or even up to 98% of our mature trees be killed in the better part of the last two decades, basically starting in 2002 until now. Right. It's it, been rapid. Rapid. Like that on a scale of a forest, two, two decades is nothing. Right. And these are, these are forests that generally management hasn't been a big part of. Fire normally would only happen every 100 to 300, maybe up to 600 years. So fire is infrequent. And when fire does happen, it kills all the overstory trees and takes out most of the forest in what's called a stand replacing fire. Yet we don't know very much about how often these beetle outbreaks occur on this type of scale. It's believed that part of why they're so bad right now is because these beetles, they um, have a life cycle that's dependent on temperature. So if you have a warm winter and then warm spring and then warm summer and then warm fall, when they would normally only live one life cycle in an entire growing season, they're now living two life cycles in an entire growing season. So the population is increasing exponentially. And then they don't die in the winter. 
So they survive. And then the next year, all of the population growth produces two life cycles worth of beetles. So you end up with these exponential growth curves with almost no mortality in the winter. And they just start sweeping through the forest, like hungry for trees, moving on to the next green stand, just like kill, 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 food, food, food. Right. So there's this climate driven process. Some think our lack of fire, even though it only should happen every one to 300 years, is allowing these beetles to really take control because there's no, there's no, uh, patches with no food for them. So they have this continuous food source. That makes sense. So one could argue that returning fire to these landscapes and letting big fires happen might actually help with some of the beetle problems, but perhaps it's already too late, right? Like most of our forests are already totally decimated. Right. The only piece that's inspiring is Wolf Creek Pass is one example. The amount of regeneration that's happening is pretty phenomenal in some places. And mostly we're looking at subalpine fir and Engelman spruce coming back, but they're coming back in numbers that are like healthy forested numbers. Hmm. So maybe some have taken it a step further and said, this is just part of these, these disturbance cycles in these forests is drought driven, unprecedented mortality events that occur every one to 300 years. And the reality is it's potentially all of those things. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. Right. And maybe it's really complicated where like in some cases fire would, would be the dominant disturbance and in other cases beetles would be and in other cases both would interact together and it's, it's some weird hodgepodge of all of the above and that's why science is like, oh, we have this publication that says this and this publication that says this. There's no disagreement. It's just, it's complicated out there. Right. And I think... I think the lay public has a deep misunderstanding of how science works in terms of, you know, research can like help other aspects of research come to a more complete picture. Right. It's not usually just one thing. Right. Right. Like it's a, it's a combination of variables that contributes to what we see in the world. Right. And just because one paper is published doesn't mean all of the facts are there. Right. It might mean... Right in Southwest Colorado on Wolf Creek Pass in 2014, those are the facts, right? 82% of trees were dead. Those are the facts. The process about why and how, we need a lot more research to concretely give a fact-based approach to that. And I mean, it's it's wild. Like you were up in Vestal Basin this summer. Yeah. I know that. That trail from Elk Creek into Vestal Basin. Yeah. There is these massive Douglas firs that are still alive next to all the dead spruce. And I, I look at that and I'm like, what? This is wild. Was this a Douglas fir forest during the 1500s mega drought? And then it got cooler and wetter and spruce fir came in here. And now we're seeing widespread spruce fir mortality and Douglas fir is coming back into the understory. So are we moving back towards the Douglas fir forest? <laughs> what a cool can of worms. Yeah, science doesn't have an answer, but we could totally use the scientific method to ask that question and test right. that hypothesis, which is exciting. That is cool. Yeah. Um, but what I'm hearing you say, though, is that in problems like beetle kill and, you know, increasing forest fires and things of that nature, that it seems like climate change is a variable that is part of the equation. A absolutely. If at the very least, 
we have to examine that we are entering a dry period that's warmer than period of, say, the 1930s until the 1980s and 90s. So we're, we're in that window, we're looking at drier and warmer. And if you look at the projections, if you look at all of the science supporting the processes that are interacting with our greenhouse gases, we are on a fast track to a much warmer world. Well, and what's interesting about that is that we actually have a planet in our solar system where that's actually observable. Right. Which is Venus. Right. Like, you look at Venus and its atmosphere and the carbon the carbon gases in Venus's atmosphere, like, you understand what that does to a planet. Right. And how it gets to that point in time. And I think that's what's interesting about people that say that climate change isn't a thing. It's like, it's an observable thing that already has happened in other planets. Right. And like if we can measure it. Exactly. The physical processes aren't that complicated. Right. Projecting into the future and into the past where we don't have direct measurements. Yeah, there's some nuance there and it's complicated. Sure. But compared to the, we measured this, we, we can look at that relationship. The, the processes are pretty well understood. Right. So from a scientific perspective, there's, there's no doubt that that climate is changing and that we should probably do something about it. I, th- I think it's pretty clear. <laughs> yeah, I think it's <laughs> super clear. So so with that being said, um, I want to ask you a question that's kind of controversial. Yes. Um, but I have noticed, and I know that my friend Candace uh, Dyer has also noticed this because we've had some conversations about it, and I'm sure Hillary Younger as well. Uh, but there are some prominent uh, very famous, well-known, well-established uh, landscape fine art photographers out there that are idolized by the community that position themselves as landscape photographers and stewards of the natural world uh, who gain most, if not all, of their income and fame and who they are as a person from the natural landscape and how it exists today who, and I don't want to make this political because it doesn't necessarily need to be political, but these these individuals don't have, um, they don't believe that climate science is real. They think it's a hoax. Um, they don't see it as a problem, which to me is kind of this classic, uh, you can't hold two ideas in your mind at the same time problem. Mm. And... It's interesting to me that we have landscape photographers that think climate science is a hoax. And I'm curious, how, how is it, from your perspective, how is it that you think that is even possible? Oh, (laughs) I mean, I think there's a lot of ways that it's possible. I don't know anything about their, um, background and their, their belief structure, but you know, I mean, the, the whole group of people that Bill Nye has spent some time debating publicly include and even the newly appointed head of the National Oceanic um, Administration, right? NOAA, the new NOAA head, their, their director is a climate change denier, but he's an educated PhD scientist and he has a background in meteorology and he also has some background in climate science and he interprets data in a very different way than say the 98% of scientists and says there's no relationship between greenhouse gas levels like carbon dioxide and temperature on our planet. And he attributes it to a time period of observations where the 
uh, temperature data is really variable and the greenhouse gas uh, uh, levels in that atmosphere were generally decreasing. And that's a historical time period where we don't have direct measurements. And the primary process for carbon dioxide going down was plants. Plants were fixing carbon from the atmosphere. The variability in the temperature has many hypotheses, some being changes in surface albedo from the advance and retreat of glaciers going back and forth. And some would say, well, why wouldn't carbon dioxide also fluctuate? Because then wouldn't the amount of land available for plants fluctuate? And maybe we found a fallacy in some of these arguments and we don't have an answer. And so that is a place where some scientists lean on a period of data to make a broad assertion that we can't make the assumption that this relationship is always linked into the future or even well into the past. To me, it's almost like Pascal's wager. I don't know if you're familiar mm. with that from phil phil philosophy and, and religious philosophy, but essentially Pascal's wager, and which is, this is going to sound funny coming from me because I'm an atheist, but Pascal's wager is essentially was, it doesn't really matter if you believe God exists or not. Um, you should believe in God because if you're wrong, the consequences are much greater than if you're right, mm. right? And I think Pat, the Pascal's wager idea makes a lot of sense in terms of how we think about climate science right. as well. Like, okay, yes, there might there's a 2% chance that we're not totally right about this. Or maybe let's even say there's a 50% chance that we're not right about climate science. Right. Okay? Let's, let's go there, even though the, sure. not a lot of people would even go that far. But uh, there's a lot of, you know, conservative individuals who I think would. I think even if you were to say there's a, there's a high likelihood that we're not right about it, to me, the consequences of not taking action are much greater than the consequences of taking action. Right. So why not? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, that's how I see it, right? And so this is why it's so hard for me to understand. I mean, I work with a lot of conservative people in forest management, in range management, in agriculture, across the spectrum. And when I approach these people as scientists, we can come to consensus so fast that the world is changing and we need adaptive capacity for those changes. We don't have to talk about the po politics of cutting fossil fuel emissions and thinking about how are we going to achieve carbon dioxide emission reductions and what does that mean for a global market and you shouldn't travel on airplanes. We don't have to go into any of those really tough ethical energy production, energy demand questions to at least get on really rapid consensus of the world's changing, we're, we're experiencing more hardship because of drought, and we fear that that's going to keep getting worse, so we want adaptive capacity. That includes coming from the owner of one of the biggest mills in the Southwest right now, which is based in Montrose. He's very conservative, yet he's so on board with that concept. So then when I imagine a photographer who's out and about in the world all the time and has dedicated their career to watching landscapes, I don't know how they can't see change. I, I literally cannot fathom it. I mean, the, whether it's the change of what we started to talk about with people and land use change and the direct impacts of more people at their favorite photography spots, more roads, more traffic on those roads, more dust clouds from those roads. If you can't see that and you're out in these places, are you even looking? Then if you're looking at lakes and streams and the vegetation around them and forests burned from fire, if you can't see that change, are you even looking?
Right. And I guess I'll just, I'll just say it. Pay attention. You're not paying attention if you don't think there's change happening. I don't, I don't know otherwise. <laughs> well, and I, I think not only that, but I think that's why I kind of wove in that question around people that derive their income from it. Cause I want to hit people where it counts. I mean, if your entire income and existence relies on nature, which we shouldn't be thinking about it transactionally, but if your entire income relies on nature to be in the current, the state that it is in now, so that you can make great photographs, and that's shifting away from that reality, it seems to me like you would be motivated to maybe do something about that. Right. But we often see that a lot of photographers, no, it's a lot, but there are photographers that I know personally that are conservative, and and they call themselves stewards of the natural world, and they tout themselves as being heroes of nature, but when it comes down to how they think about climate and what is actually where the rubber hits the road in terms of what makes a difference in those things, they don't put their money where their mouth is. Interesting. And that bothers me. Yeah. And I'm just going to come out and say it. I, I think as a community, I think we need to do a better job of having those conversations, not confronting people and being assholes about it, but I think asking someone straight up question like, how do you hold these two universes in your mind simultaneously? Right. Like, cause they can't exist at the same time. Right. And so maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe that's a future podcast is get one of these photographers to have that dialogue and that conversation. We heard it from me. Well, I would <laughs> let's say, let's hear it from them. I mean, let's be real. Vote. Right. And voting too. I mean, it's an election year. It's a big deal. And it's, it's not just, Who's going to be president? It's who are your representatives? It's right. who are your local decision makers? Right. I mean, cities are so impactful. Definitely. Durango's a small place, but our city can take smart, climate-friendly steps forward and pass regulations so that when tourists come here, they're stuck in a climate-friendly bubble. Right. Our city power is massive, right. and we're tiny Durango. Imagine Denver, San Francisco, New York, etc. Sure. Like, that's, that's powerful. So... I always say vote, and also I think with voting, be the individual that you want to be, not be an asshole to some of these people who might be different, and instead embrace the dialogue and put forward good intentions into that dialogue and have these conversations, even if they're hard to talk about. Right. We're so empowered as individuals. Like, that is the crux of our, of our ability, and I guess that's where I feel really empowered as someone who studied this stuff and got grilled by my dissertation committee <laughs> on this stuff is I feel empowered to go out and ask other people why they think the way they think and including some, some folks who have really conservative values and have these conversations where we find the common ground of accepting, oh yes, we both agree change is happening. When I liked what you said earlier, what did you call it? Adaptive capacity? Yeah. Yeah, I like that because, and I think that's what it comes down to is finding that common ground. It's like, we all agree that we want to minimize this thing, whatever it is. It doesn't matter what's causing it. We want to minimize its impact because we agree that would be bad for all of us. Right. So what does that look like? Right. I mean, in a nutshell, COVID has daylighted how people see the world in light of climate change, right? It's a similar challenge. It's a big abstract problem that's crippling our economies. It's killing people. 
It's disproportionately impacting the poor relative to the wealthy. These are all themes that climate change poses onto our societies too, right? And COVID, what's the story there? It's adaptive capacity. Like, do you want to go to work? I mean, I have to wear a mask for, or a mask and top for four hours today. Right. Four and a half hours. Well, cool. I definitely would rather do my class different. I have to adapt some. I have to get a thing stuck up in my nose every two weeks or so to get tested. Those tests aren't pleasant, but it's for the safety of our college campus. Like all of the things that we're experiencing are adaptive capacity towards COVID. And all we really need to do is scale some of these issues up to start thinking about how can we have bigger adaptive capacity to drought, wildfire, climate-induced changes. Sure. So what are some actionable steps that other landscape photographers can take to be more engaged on this issue? I think voting, writing letters to representatives is really important. Having awareness and, and communicating that awareness is really important. Just acknowledging the sensitivity of place and some of the challenges that places might experience. If you're going into the Alpine, do some research. What kind of year has it been? Has it been a wet year? Is it a dry year? Are the patterns and wildflowers you're seeing showing you where the wet spots are because it's been a dry year? Or are the wildflowers just, you know, universally abundant because it's been a productive wet year? And just understanding some relativity of like, oh, I'm visiting Southwest Colorado this year. They didn't have monsoons. The fall colors are different this year because they didn't have monsoons. And having some of that awareness to think about what might the future look like if another year happens without monsoons. Or five or ten. Exactly. Boom. That's exactly what we need to be thinking about. And sharing some of that story and having that awareness, I think, is really powerful when you're talking about people who make money and gain attention by interacting with nature. You have to have some level of awareness and communication of what nature means in the face of a changing climate. I like it. Well, man, this has been fun. Heck yeah. Super we, fun. We covered it. We covered it all and more. Man, so it's so easy to just like <laughs> go off and ramble on some of this stuff. I know, man. Talking with you is always great. So Yeah, well, thanks, man. This has been really fun, and I appreciate uh, you taking the time to give us some thoughtful answers to some of these difficult questions. Heck yeah. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Well, thank you to Michael for joining me for our lively discussion on the podcast. I really appreciate your support and friendship, and I greatly appreciate your viewpoints regarding science and the intersections with our artistic craft. I hope you also enjoyed this discussion and would love to hear from listeners about it over on Nature Photographers Network. Listeners can get a free trial to the site and join in on discussions about the podcast episodes, as well as get thoughtful critique on their images and a ton more. Check it out by visiting the link in the show notes. I also want to thank our latest patron, Gary Crabb, who will be joining us on the podcast soon as well. Gary is a fantastic photographer who used to manage the photographic library of Galen Rowell. I'm looking forward to that episode for sure. Thanks also to former guest Royce Bear for bumping up your support over on Patreon. I appreciate that. I can't do this podcast without your support, so anything helps. Also, thanks to our new patron, Charles Stevens, who is supporting us using the new annual membership option, which gives you a discount on your support of the show. Coming up on the show, I'll be speaking with Benjamin Williamson, 
I've been a huge fan of his work from New England for a long time, so I'm really looking forward to recording that episode. I also wanted to let you know that tonight, Wednesday, October 14th, at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time, I will be conducting a presentation on mountain photography via Zoom for Linda Nichols Happy Hour. If you want to join up, look for details in the show notes. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.